Hello and welcome back to The Latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm Ramu. And this week we're going to talk about noir, famous noir, uh, Maltese Falcon from 1941, starring none other than Humphrey Bogart. And also it has Peter Lorre in it, and also Cindy Greenstreet, and then also a bunch of ladies I didn't recognize. We'll talk about them shortly. But before we do, how was your week? Uh, my week was really fun. I spent the part of the weekend at a haunted house. Mm, I don't know if it was haunted. Well, it wasn't haunted when we were there, except maybe by the spirit of... Terrible the lingering person. spirit uh, of uh, white supremacy. Mm. Uh, but other than that, um, it was a really lovely kind of Victorian museum. Yeah. No, it was very cool. I was, was uh, on the bank of the Lake Merritt. Lake Merritt. Mm. And it was the house for the, uh, well, the Cameron Stanford House, and it was the location, the original museum. We had a much smaller collection. It was that way up until the 1950s, which is amazing. Um, but it's now a historical home that's been restored back to at least the upstairs have been restored back to its former glory. Yeah. Some of it is modern, but a lot yeah. of it is former glory. Well, as, as we were there, they were restoring um, downstairs for a new exhibit, so it'll be worth going back in, in the future. And so, yeah, for sure. So, well, how was your weekend? You know, good. My whole week's been okay. I've been very busy with work. It's very a good busy. problem to have. Mm. Uh, so there's that. And... I have not been editing the way that I should be, so that's on my plate for this week. Uh, but let's get into this movie. Well, first we want to apologize for all the... Oh, yeah. I'm hoping that I'm going to be able to edit out most of the background sound, but it's it's warm in here, and I don't want to swelter to death, so the windows are open. And there might be some whooshing. Whoosh, whoosh. But I'll try to keep it to a... A minimum as it gets right. louder outside as I speak. <laughs> yes. Okay. So the Maltese Falcon. It's a remake. It's, it's a, the it's second a, remake. Oh. oh no! Excuse me. It's the third take on this story. Third take on the story. It's right. a it's a filmic remake in 1941. So Hollywood's been doing this shit forever. For a very long time. Uh, and it's strange that they were not very far apart either. No, ten years. Uh, this one came out in 41. The movie. The book was written. Dashiell Hammett mm-hmm. published a book in 1930. Right. The first movie adaptation, which I'm not even looking up, was in 1931. Mm-hmm. And then this was in 1941, directed by John Huston. Yeah, that one. And also, isn't he, doesn't he have a cameo in it? His father does. His father. Walter. His father showed up to do a cameo. Um, and you might remember the same pair showed up in... Um, in Treasure of Sierra Madre. That's right. They both show Bogart up. Bogart and, and Walter. Right. Walter was the minor, and and uh, John was not only directing, but he also plays a part in the beginning as the American who perpetually gets needled. That's right. The, the dude in the white suit. Right. By Fred Dobbs for money. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, this is his first film. And oh wow, really? Yeah, he's very That's incredible. I mean, he grew up on film sets. I would assume. Right. He also was an assistant director to some very uh, hefty personalities, and he had an office. And he wanted to uh, to redo this 
project. He liked the book. So the movie, the original movie of the same name, not great. The original movie is famous because it was pre-code, and there's a lot, a lot of what even wound up being suggested in this film version was out in the open then. And there's a second version where Sam Spade's name is changed, and he's turned into a, like a comic character, and Ben oh, Davis like is playing the the femme fatale, and it's all eyes. sort of done for laughs. That's weird. And That's so, really weird. Yeah, that was a weird take. And then there was this film, which was uh, apparently Houston liked the book. Houston wanted to do an adaptation of the book. He told his secretary, "Just, just write this in script form. Break down because Dashiell Hammett was his that kind of writer." Secretary. Right. Yeah, but still. So, so she just literally took all of the dialogue, right? And just saved the dialogue, which is why the dialogue is still intact, most of it. And the dialogue's very good in this movie, not surprisingly, if it was all right. direct. So did he get a Hollywood writing credit? I'm not get sure. Get him into the works. Writers Guild of America? Like, well, they I don't just even know had a problem for such a long time that, you know, they bought the rights to it. Um, and they were able to do what they liked with it. I'm not sure what the, the legal end of it was. But she wrote it up, and apparently what happened is that one of the producers comes into his office, Houston's not there, sees the draft of the script, looks it over and says, okay, we're doing this movie. Who does? Who said that? Uh, the producer. The producer, okay. And, um, yeah, it, 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 it was you amazing. You screen credit writing, or screen Which credit Which is credits, good. Um, oh, no, I mean, John Houston is credited with screenplay. Okay. Which is okay. interesting. <laughs> I guess he added in all the blocking and the stage Well, yeah, I and mean, he did a lot of really interesting decisions, and you were mentioning how strangely framed it is at times, but mm -hmm. he really did, being that cameras were so big and so bulky mm -hmm. at the time, there's not a lot of moving cameras, but as a trademark of film noir, there is a real interesting emphasis on composition yeah. and blocking in the film. Yeah, and then the combination of light and dark, because mm -hmm. it's in black and white. Right. And that is how you get things to stand out or not. Let's talk real quick about a MacGuffin. All right. What's a MacGuffin? A is MacGuffin? it something you order at McDonald's? Yes. An egg MacGuffin. Um, <laughs> sausage MacGuffin. You're a sausage MacGuffin. A sausage. <laughs> sausage MacGuffin with egg. That's hard to say. Uh, yeah. Just you're not supposed to be saying it. Uh, so a MacGuffin is... Sort of, it's typically an object or objects that motivate the plot to start, and then is it really important? And sometimes the, the, its whereabouts are unresolved. Uh, well known, uh, and this movie is in the history of the MacGuffin, like strongly the book first and then the movie, because. The titular Maltese Falcon mm -hmm. is, for all intents and purposes, a MacGuffin. A lot of stuff happens because of this thing, but it itself is not very important. Also, spoiler alert, it's not real. It's faux. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, Hitchcock popularized the term MacGuffin in 1935 with The 39 Steps. And then he tells a story in 1939, just before this movie comes out, and the book is written. Oh, no, the book has been written. The book was written in 30. Uh, that goes a little something like this. 
It might be a Scottish name taken from a story about two men on a train. One man says, what's that package up there in the baggage rack? And the other answers, oh, that's a MacGuffin. The first one asks, what's a MacGuffin? Well, the other man says, it's an apparatus for trapping lions in the Scottish Highlands. The first man says, but there are no lions in the Scottish Highlands. And the other one answers, well then, that's no MacGuffin. So you see, a MacGuffin is nothing at all. Uh, we've encountered this, of course, in Pulp Fiction. Mm -hmm. That suitcase, 100% a MacGuffin. Uh, every Indiana Jones movie revolves around some sort of MacGuffin. Right. So it's a very common um, thing. A lot of them are used in noir right. fiction. Kiss Me Deadly very famously has the original version of the glowing suitcase from Pulp mm. Fiction. And you only find out, and very much like Raiders of Lost Ark, which is compared to, at the last five minutes of the film, the MacGuffin explodes and kills everyone, apparently. Oops, kaboom, kablawi. And, um... Turns out you didn't want that. Right. And, uh, yeah, th that's kind of the, the fun of the film, is that uh, in that movie, Mike Hammer and his secretary, and everyone's trying to get a hold of this suitcase, and it winds up being a nuclear device, and no one's aware of it until someone opens it at the last minute, but he becomes aware of the detective hero becomes aware right before that someone to get opens out. it. Right. <laughs> gotcha. So that was a really interesting take on the MacGuffin, because like we Lost Ark, where, yes, it's just what motivates the plot all through the film, and at the end it actually does something. Because there are some MacGuffins that do nothing at all. It turns out, uh, we'll, we'll be watching, um, let's see, a good example of that is uh, North by Northwest, which we'll see soon. Yes. Or even Psycho where there's a whole robbery that happens in the end of the film that has nothing really, almost no impact on the rest of the film, because that's not what it's about. Nice. Okay. So, now we've talked about that, let's talk about Sam Spade and mm -hmm. Dashiell Hammett, but mostly Sam Spade, the character that Humphrey Borgard is playing in this movie. By the way, you guys, he's way better in this to me. <laughs> The last time I saw him. Yeah, I really, I liked him in this. I think maybe this, he's good in Casablanca. Right. But I think this might be my favorite of his performances. I mean, he's great in the Treasure mm -hmm. of the Sierra Madre, but it's a down. <laughs> yeah, it's it very much is. It's a down. That film is really fun in some respects, and one of them is Like the Man Who Would Be King, which is another John Huston movie, mm -hmm. uh, which I'm surprised isn't on this list. I have never, oh. No, I've never seen it. Is a, about trying to obtain something that you either shouldn't have or you can't really ever get your hands on. What, the king, uh, being a king? Being a king. These two English Unless soldiers. Unless you were born a certain right, way, that's not for you. Set out to become kings of a remote, distant village, uh, mountain village. Oh, is that the one with Michael Caine? Yeah, Afghanistan. Michael Caine and Sean Connery. is the movie that I was thinking of. Right. Okay. But it's it's very similar. I have seen it. I have. Right. It's very good. True Treasure of Sierra Madre, and at the end, it's like, oh, this was a really bad idea from the beginning. From the beginning. Y'all are dumb as shit. <laughs> right. um, so this character, Sam Spade, um, was in three books. Mm -hmm. This is the Maltese Falcon is the first one. Right. I was serialized in five parts and issues of Black Mask. Right. Then it was in a... Spade and Archer. So, he's not in any other full books by Dashiell Hammett. The other books that he's in 
are from 2009 and 2007. So someone continued the legacy of them? I guess. Them? I guess. Um, the, the 2009 is called Spade and Archer, so it would predate right. this story, because, spoiler alert, y'all, Archer dies, like, very early in this movie. Ten minutes in? Mm-hmm. Maybe 15? He dies very yeah. early in this book. It's one of the catalysts for the rest of it. But he was in a short story collection called A Man Called Spade and Other Stories. And I thought he was in more stuff, but not really. He's just this. It's this movie is so famous. Dashiell Hammett was, um, he wrote, he invented a lot of characters, actually. Sam Spade is the, the one that stands out. So the Continental Op was another one. Um, and uh, also The Thin Man. I always get the thin man and the third man right. mixed up. I don't think I've seen the, the thin, thin man, man stories. Yes, you've seen one with me. It's okay. William Powell and Myrtle Loy, and they're a married couple who drink entirely too much. Ah, uh, yes. And they're just yes, yes, yes. part of what the amusing um, elements of that story is how absolutely devoted they are to each other yeah. all the time, unfailingly. That's very sweet. But they, they need to see get some guidance about their chemical dependency, frankly. But. Um, but yeah, it's Deshel Hammett was an author. He let's see, where did he start out? Because he really did change um, detective fiction. Really? Because at the time, what was being written was an awful lot of Agatha Christie and Agatha Christie's imitators. Interesting. It went from Arthur Conan Doyle's kind of well stories. Let's and start then, with the first one. Which was Edgar Allan Poe. That's right. <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe who invented Auguste Dupin and Holmes is very much in that kind yeah. of um still Victorian style. Right. Yeah. And also as much as people don't Maybe seem to remember, yeah. Oh well he stretched for a great long, a long time, time from Victorian to Edwardian. Gotcha. Um and uh and he kept trying to retire and even kill Holmes unsuccessfully because the public wanted him back all the time. Uh, and his stories were like Poe's in that they were sort of mysteries about using a process and solving a crime, and often there was a lot of strange kind of horrible graphic violence, at least uh, as much as could be printed in the Strand. But at this time, there's all sorts of very cozy mystery stories with very cozy characters, and... This ain't cozy, oh. Hammett brings back his own background as a Pinkerton detective. Which is which is terrible and horrible, and it makes him an evil man. No, here's the issue: the Pinkerton detectives did in the early days a great deal of good. They stopped the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. They fought for the right. No, side. they didn't. Yeah, they did. <laughs> no, no, he's assassinated. No, 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 they stopped the first attempt to assassinate <laughs> okay, Abraham but Lincoln. He, they didn't stop they his assassination. Swept him away um, out of the uh, out of harm's way, putting him disguised under a tree. It's a very interesting story. They. Um, they actually brought some of the people who committed the assassination to justice. They infiltrated the Confederacy during the Civil War. It was by the time we're talking about when he right. would have been in it. No, here's what happened: they became a very large private security organization. Mm-hmm. It wasn't always in Pinkerton's hands at the end, making these decisions passed on to his two sons. Um, and so, at one point, there were more, I think there were actually more Pinkertons hired across the country. The than cops? The, right. Yeah. 
effectively. Um, and they were thugs and bullies, and they killed well, people. What happened is that they began getting jobs busting up labor unions, and that's when it got really bad. And so I said what I said, right? <laughs> and what happened is at this point, Dashiell Hammett. Who it was a Bounced. very he was a very brave man himself. He was an ambulance driver like Hemingway during the Spanish oh, awesome. wow. Civil War, and so he decided this is not he had a crisis of conscience. Sign up for this. I didn't sign up for this. He admired and respected some of the people he met with Pinkertons, mm-hmm. and he the detective code as we know it was really inspired by people that he met during that time. It's very much like reading Ian Fleming and realizing when you're reading James Bond, you're He's, reading people that he knew when yeah. he worked for the Secret Service, right? So, um, so yes, the Pinkertons took a turn as an organization. He wanted no part of it. And he also began suffering from health problems. He was a, a lunger, sadly, as they used to call them back then, which is he had tuberculosis. Oh, no. And so he began to write, and it wasn't helped by the fact that he also drank like a fish. Yeah, he did. He was drinking the whole time he was writing this book. And so he created this character that's inspired, though not specifically based on any of the characters he met while he was working at the Pinkertons, and he brought in sort of a amoral, sleazy kind of underlife that he met when he was there. The detectives often were, as you mentioned, they could be bought, they, you know, they could be paid off, they could be uh, bargained with, either in exchange for sexual favors or in exchange for large sums of money. And so his Sam Spade, even in this post-code um, version of this film, yeah, is that character. Yeah, yeah, he's um, he's really interesting. And the fact that we're in code, they sort of obliquely. The way I, <laughs> let me start up. Okay. One of the frustrating things about the code for me is not separate beds or fade to black or any of that stuff. It's that inevitably the way that you knew that two people had slept together was the woman got fucking hysterical. Like, I don't like the word hysterical, but that is what she was, mm-hmm. because that is what is portrayed on this film. It's bonkers to me. It is um as we talked about in Fatal Attraction, mm-hmm. why was this woman so obsessed with this man? Like she has dated other people. She has slept with other people before. So why do we what get into Because now we're just describing elements of the plot that will... Yeah, well, okay. yes. But I think right. the only thing that the code really... Well, there's no blood in this movie. Well, you could... There were odd businesses. Again, even married couples couldn't sleep in the same bed. Yeah. You couldn't show any kind of uh, nudity, which was... You couldn't kiss laying down. Yeah, I know that was one of the even things. kissing was really Kissing strange. was tricky. Like, people just mashed just their faces put together. Their faces up to each other, and I'm like, am I doing it wrong? I don't <laughs> think I'm doing it wrong. I think they're yeah, doing it wrong. One of the other things, there was no blood that really could be seen. Yeah. This is why when we saw Dracula, he mm-hmm. covered them with his cloak before mm-hmm. he bites them, whereas 20 years later in Hammer's version, just there's blood, blood dripping all yeah. over uh, I, forget, I forget what actress is blood dropping down her heating bosom and in your negligee. It's like, yeah, they just did it all at the same time. Get it out of the way. But um, you also yeah. couldn't have, for instance, if I was going to shoot you, God forbid, <laughs> you would have to cut to me firing a gun and cut to you falling down. Falling down. But in the same take, though. Yeah. You couldn't do it. Right. Well, I mean, that was why Up got a PG rating because he he pointed a gun at somebody. 
the old man at the right. beginning points a gun at someone, and that's PG. That's where we're at now, or at least when that movie came out, which I want to say is like late aughts. Yes. Uh, I want, real quick, before we get started, the tagline on the poster for this film is a story as explosive as the blazing as his blazing automatics. He doesn't carry a gun in this movie. <laughs> like he, well, most of the time he doesn't carry a gun in this movie. He'll take guns away from people, but right. then he dumbly hands them back to them. Uh, so that ta- that tagline right. just is like, did you watch the movie <laughs> or like read any of it? It was wild. Anyway, so that's dumb. We don't mm-hmm. like that. San Francisco, nineteen forty one. Was this film shot in San Francisco? Uh, there were parts of the series that were done in San Francisco, I believe, but mostly it was shot there on studio in the in studio. The studio, right? It's a lot indoors, so mm-hmm. that makes sense. Uh, we have private investigators Sam Spade and Miles Archer at Spade and Archer. And a uh, nice lady, a beautiful lady, some dame walks into their office. Some good-looking dame with some a great pair of dams, the kind that make you want to think a priest want to kick in a stained glass window. That woman, you know? That's The one who's wild. wearing a dress who was two sizes too short two years ago. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Her name is Ruth Wonderly. Psst. No, it isn't. And she is looking for, she says, her missing sister, who ran off from her home in New York, came to the city with some dude named Floyd Thursby, which is a fantastic name. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Archer, looking her up and down, watching her walk in, watching her walk out, is like, I will help you look for your sister. And they know what hotel this man is at, so he's Mm going to go surveil this hotel. She lays on a sob story. She does. And uh, we should also mention Effie, the secretary. She's so good. Who is really good, because she talks as tough as the guys do. Yeah. She is like the moral conscience of the group. For sure. And because they don't have much in the way of morals. Spade is sleeping with Archer's wife. That's right, yeah. Right? And then he also is constantly like turning stuff over for money. But they defer to her. She lives with her mom. Yeah. She's flirting all the time. Yeah, but not in spade. Not in a vulgar not in a vulgar way, and not in a way where if he tried to make a move, she would right. do it. Because she's a woman who knows not to shit where she eats. <laughs> right. Because she's smart. She also, Meanwhile, you're sleeping with his wife. Right. Uh-uh, I'm not. She knows these and guys. She knows. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And she, like she works some long ass hours because sometimes she call he calls the office at like dark thirty, and right. she's like. I'm still here. I'm like, it's 11 o'clock. Go home. <laughs> and he says that too. You should go home. So outside uh-huh. of this hotel, we see Archer watching, looking. He's got a gun in his pocket. But before he can do anything with said gun, he is shot in the tummy and falls down a big hill. Right. I was like, he fell a long way. And I was like, is he just falling down one of the hills? So it's kind of like, what is happening? Then... He uh, Spade gets a call and says that Archer's been killed. Mm-hmm. He tries to reach out to Wonderly, Ruth Wonderly, at her hotel, um, but she, it's they say that she's checked out. And then he is grilled by Detective Tom Polehouse. I didn't know his last name. I, they just call him Tom in this. And uh, a lieutenant as well, who tell him that Thursby was murdered the same time. Yeah. And presume that he murdered Thursby for murdering Archer. Right. Now, I should mention to people who follow this kind of thing, I'm one of them, 
the det- everyone in this movie is amazing. Basically, he had a roster of actors. Uh, what the fuck they were doing. Right. They were just real pros, and it's Ward Bond and Barton McLean, who are like two of the great tough guys. Ward Bond did a lot of a, series, a whole bunch of films with John Wayne. Oh, okay. Um, and westerns and stuff like that. And uh, Barton McLean is just like that guy. That guy who's always the. the, the He's usually playing the thug. Here he's playing the, the cop who's not above smacking yeah. people around the right. element. Although neither is Sam Spade. Right. Later he smacks somebody and says, when you're smacked, you'll like <laughs> you'll take it. it and like you'll it. take it and you'll like it, yeah. That's the person he smacks, Peter Lorre. And who doesn't want to smack <laughs> Peter Lorre? Um, so the next day, uh, Spade meets up with the woman clients. Mm-hmm. And he's like, so you're full of bullshit. And she's like, my name is Bridget O'Shaughnessy. And I'm like, okay, are you going to have an accent now too? Because, <laughs> wow, so that's a fucking <laughs> Irish name. Okay. And she's like, my story was made up. And he says, one of my favorite things ever, we didn't exactly believe your story, Miss Wonderly. We believed your $200. I mean, you paid us more than if you'd been telling us the truth and enough more to make it all right. Which is very good. It's very good. So he knew she was full of shit, but uh, yes, uh, she gave him two hundred dollars, two hundred nineteen forty one dollars. Right. That's a lot of money. I didn't look it up, but it's a lot of money. So now she and now she puts on what was me? Please, please help! I'm in danger. Face mm-hmm. uh, and asks him to investigate the murders. Uh, and she says Thursby was my partner, took advantage of her, probably killed Archer, but she doesn't know who killed him. And then he goes to his office where another person walks in. That person is Joel Cairo. Mm-hmm. That person is Peter Lorre. That person is a mess. He offers $5,000 to find a black figure of a bird. Spade skeptical. Cairo pulls a gun on him. Tiny little snubby nose gun. And he says, I'm going to, ser- he, he believes that Spade has this, mm-hmm. this bird, this black, like, stone bird. And he try he, tr- he pulls the gun on him. He says, I'm going to search. And very easily, Spade disarms him. <laughs> right. Takes his gun and puts it in his pocket. They talk it out. He's like, and we're not doing this. You gotta go. I'm not looking for your bird, not for you. You're a dickhead and you need to leave. Stop trying to rob me. As Peter Lorre is going to leave, he says, what about my gun? And Spade goes, oh right, I almost forgot. Hands him his gun, to which Peter Lorre then holds him up again. And then is like, oh shit. And then leans against his de- desk while this dude raises hands up. And he's laughing because like, so, why did I do like, something so stupid? So stupid. You right. can give him his gun back, but you take the bullets out first. Right. And, like, yeah, just I was a, like, he's not gonna, he did it. I was mentioning the difference between, because Hubby Bogart played both Sam Spade and he played Philip Marlowe. Oh, Who was yeah. written by Raymond Chandler. Yeah, yeah. And I was explaining the difference between... Spade and Marlowe. Spade and Marlowe is that... Whereas Marlowe is a very moral man who has his own sense of morals, but he has rules that he won't cross. Right. And he's kind of, as he's been described, as this, like, slumming knight in shining armor. Okay. Right? That feels very much like Rick from Casablanca, right. too. Right, that's... Yeah. Like, 
it's similar to that character, that Spade is a guy who is amoral. Yeah. And he he basically is not quite as, not nearly as principled as, as Marlo is. He also has, and we see that a lot in this movie, this really savage temper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he will, he's almost a little vindictive about it, but not in, in the sense that he doesn't blow up at uh, Peter Lloyd's character for outwitting him briefly. He actually just puts up his hands and laughs. Like, he laughs. Right. Like, yeah, he puts his How hands like, behind his head, right. and he st- leans back and leans against his de- desk. But then he does beat the crap out of Cairo and then search the body <laughs> while he's unconscious. Right. So... And then he slaps him later. Like, he never stops. He's like, you're a dick, and I'm... I, you got me once, and now I'm going to get you 40 times. <laughs> it's really funny is that the... As I said, the performers in here, they have a great cast. The way that Bogart and Peter Lorre work off of each other is hysterical. It's very good. Peter Lorre is quite good. Always. Uh-huh. And they do real well. Too. I mean, they worked together right. a number of times, it seems like. Yeah, At least did. twice, but <laughs> a number of times. Uh, so... Also, his name is Joe Cairo. No, it isn't. But that's our and he's Joel. one of possibly two gay characters in this story. That's true. I also um, I remember we were watching it, and there were a few names where I was like, I didn't even know that was a name in 1941. Right. Joel does not seem like a name in 1941. Sam, well, remember, absolutely. It was a name in 1930. So. Well, fair enough. It just <laughs> seems very weird, though. Okay, so then Sam Spade's going to go to see his client, mm-hmm. Mrs. O'Shaughnessy. Ms. Excuse me, Ms. O'Shaughnessy, and he's followed, but he's managed to evade his his uh, tail. And then he's telling her about the visit that he received from Cairo. Mm-hmm. She gets real cagey, and he's like, "Okay, you, how do you know this dude? Because clearly, you right. know this dude." And She's like, ooh, that means the fat man is in San Francisco, which, come on now. Uh, and so Spade goes to Cairo's hotel room in the morning, and he sees Wilmer Cook, the man who was trailing him, played right. by Alicia Cook. Elisha? Elisha Cook. Elisha, excuse me. Who we saw, did we see him in another thing? or just, We went to a, his father, probably, mm-hmm. yeah. owned one of the original Victorians in Oakland. He, right. We saw his name yesterday in the haunted house that we were at. It wasn't haunted. But we were like, our roommate specifically was like, I know that name. Elijah right. Cook is pretty specific. So, I And guess he shows up everywhere. You'll be watching Shane, or you'll be watching uh, movies like Oh, Salem's Lot. The version of Salem's Lot that we saw. Seventy-nine. Yeah. Um, It'd have to be seventy-nine because he had to be pretty old by that. Oh yeah. It's forty years after this. He and Marie Windsor, who played a husband and wife in that film, Uh, that owned the the ones who rented the house. Oh, rented out the house that Ben Mears was staying in. Mm. They played the husband and wife, and both Marie Windsor was in narrow margin. She was a big film noir Mm. femme fatale, and Elisha Cook. Goes all so they the way got back. them because they're right. like we because, want character actors again, from a go. Um, these are the movies that uh, Stephen King also loved for a lot. sure, hundred percent. Yeah. So where was I? So that's Wilmer. Wilmer is Wilmer. The- that's right. Wilmer Cook, and we find out that he works for Casper Gutman. 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 Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Who's the fat, the fat man. man? Get it? And that's <laughs> goddamn. That's Sydney Greenstreet, who is 
a rotund individual. <laughs> right. He's also, they keep having to photograph him differently or put shoes on him, because if you, as you is brought he, up, Humphrey Bogart is about five foot eight. Yeah, he's not very knows. tall. Yeah. And, uh, Green, Sydney Green Street was, I think, a little over six feet tall. Okay. And well over 300 pounds. Well, he's for a sure. big man. Yeah. And, uh, and he, I think this was his first major part. And he just kind of eats it up. We were, uh, we were commenting on how we saw Star Wars. Yeah. And how Star Wars has Jabba the Hutt is based on, on Sydney Green's character. On he even laughs per- like to him. this exactly uh, 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 That yeah. sort of like 30 laugh. Yeah. And a couple of weeks before, just on our own, we saw John McFour. And I forget who's the martial arts actor, uh, Scott Adkins. Yeah. He's doing. He's doing that. Yeah. That same kind of 30 laughter with the, with with the accents and, and everything. And the heavier, like, right. they padded him out. Which is so weird. Um, yeah. Yeah, almost like he said, I want to do Sydney Green Street for this movie. Yeah. Which that might have been. Well, or they said, we want you to do Sydney Green Street. Well, movie. that's it, because Donnie Yen, when yeah. he did that film, he was also asked, what, well, what do you want to do with this character? And he says, I want to be Bruce I'm, Lee. <laughs> Also blind, apparently. Yeah, that was a distinction. That they, as long as you're blind, it's like a, he even got a Bruce Lee suit. He got a wig to look got like you. Bruce Lee's haircut in the 60s. So, anyhow. I will say, I don't think that character was really blind. Maybe. <laughs> there were some things where I was like, oh, that's just good. Like, you get, right. you have good spatial recognition. And I'm like, but unless you're a daredevil, there's no fucking <laughs> way. Um, so... They go up to Gutman's room, mm-hmm. and he tells the history of the Maltese Falcon. Which... Yeah, we already got a a written legend at the beginning of the film. Yes, and that that's was right. written, but that was insisted on by the producer because he felt like, well, if we don't know what this big black bird is or the big dingus, as Sam Spade keeps calling it, yeah, um, no one's going to be motivated to care what happens at this point. It's like. Well, what about this big blackbird? Why is everyone looking for it? And that's something you can pull off in fiction better than you can on film, maybe. For sure, yeah. So they start with a legend of it, and it, what was the... It uh, is a, what is it, Knights Templar? Right. In 1539, the Knights Templar of Malta paid tribute to Charles V of Spain, setting him a gold falcon encrusted from head to toe with rarest jewels. Pirates seized the galley, carrying the priceless uh, token and the fate of... The Maltese Falcon remains a mystery. So it's covered in enamel at this point. Right. So nobody That's why knows it's it black. Is. Right. Um, and it was stolen from a Russian general who supposedly had it. And Gutman had hired the thieves to steal it. So right. that's and what then, he tells. And then mm-hmm. Thursby turned on O'Shaughnessy. She right. was one of the thieves. Right. Was Cairo in on it too? It was the three yeah, of I them. I think Cairo comes in. He comes in after? I think Because so. he was definitely in, because I believe they came from, what, Shanghai? Right. Was where they got it, and then they flew into San Francisco, at which point Thursby took the thing and bounced. Right. And, then, and mind you, if all this sounds really exotic, you've never been to San Francisco. Yeah, no. Because people, people fly in from, people fly in all, from all over the world. And I imagine in the 30s, it must have been it's kind of, you know, just Shanghai and Turkey and Russia. And yeah, mm-hmm. there was a lot of that here. Yeah. So at that point, he offers Sam Spade his pick of $25,000 right now, $25,000 after its sale, or a quarter of the proceeds from its sale. This is like movie things. Do you want us to pay now or do you want Pez to pay right. on the back end? And uh, then 
he gets woozy and say he Sam Spade gets woozy and passes out because he, they drugged his drink. And Wilmer Cook and Cairo come in from another room and they all leave together. And then Sam Spade wakes up on his own. And mind you, Wilmer at this point, when Spade is going up to see them, Wilmer attempts to pull a gun on him and Sam Spade's good slap happy with him, right? Yeah. Takes his gun. But also like you're not and we're in the we're in the lobby of a very nice hotel. Right. What the fuck are you gonna do? And so he, he takes the gun from him so Wilmer I, I thought That's that right. was he's got a he's got right. one of his gun in his pocket. Probably, As uh, Spade is put unconscious, Wilmer just gives him a big kick right to the him. face. Yeah. Out of like sheer spite because he embarrassed him in front of Gutman. Right. And then, yeah, and now he's made an enemy, and that comes back later. So, uh, Spade wakes up in this hotel room, and he looks around. He start, he investigates. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's his job. He's a detective. And he finds a newspaper with an arrival time of the freighter La Paloma circled, and he goes to the dock only to find that boat on fire. On real fire. It's like planes <laughs> jumping out of the windows. And later, the captain of the ship, Jacoby or Jacoby, who knows, is shot several times and staggers into Spade's office before dying. And he's clutch- clutching a bundle that contains a blackbird. <laughs> And O'Shaughnessy calls the office, gives an address, and then screams before the line goes dead. But the address of where she right. is, she's like, "Come, come get me, please, come get me." He, Sam Spade, stashes a package at the bus terminal when they used to have like lockers, right? Um, which is a big thing in older stuff. And I'm like, did they take the lockers out because they just became I've only seen for them crime? At train stations, I think, from time to time. <laughs> okay. At Amtrak station. Because it feels like right. the only people who use that shit is people who are stashing right. stuff from the cops or from somebody, you know, else. It's very, it's like, it's it's just for crime. I'm going to stick in my crime box. Deposit right. box. This is for crime. So you have to pay, what, like a dollar? Yeah, I, at something? the time, I don't even know if you needed to show ID. I'm not so sure about now, because I've never had to use one. You definitely didn't have to show ID in 1941. You had to be white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you didn't have to show ID. That's a joke, but also it's definitely not a joke. Um, so he goes... Well, he, gets, did, he gets a taxi to go Right to before house. that, he tells, as he's, he's telling Effie his directions... Uh, he gives me what he tells her or repeats one of my favorite lines in the movie, What's which that? is full of good lines. You're a good man, sister. <laughs> That's good, <laughs> right? Because she is. She is the most dependable person this entire film, for sure. Um, she. Oh yeah. So she's given this address in Burlingame, which was wild. I was like, okay, that's very far. And he takes a cab out there, mm-hmm. and it's just an empty lot. Right. That's what the that's at the address. So he gets back in the cab and goes home, and he sees her hiding in the doorway. He takes her inside, where our three favorite people: Gutman, Cairo, Wilmer, waiting for him. Guns drawn, and Gutman gives Spade, Sam Spade, ten thousand dollars for the Falcon, and he's like, "Ugh, 
That's not what we talked about earlier. It was like 50k a minute ago, but now I guess because it's in the same... Yeah. Oh, no, it's not in the same room. He's stashing yeah, it, that's right. right. But they done. need him to f- know where it is, because mm-hmm. he's the only one who knows where it is. And he makes a point of that, because Wilma wants to kill him. Wants to kill him. And so, and yeah. for that, yeah. Sam Spade's like, okay, I'll take 10 grand, and also, he's the fall guy. He's the patsy for Thursby's, or Thursby's murder, right. for Archer... Although, it turns out, I believe, Wilmer is the one who did kill Archer. It's unclear. I don't mm-hmm. know that they ever figure that it's piece out. It's very twisty It's very twisty near the end. Um, so, yeah, he's like, they're going to pin this this murder, Thursby's murder, on mm-hmm. me as a um, as retribution for killing my partner. Now, we should talk real quick about Archer and Archer's wife. <laughs> We see Archer's wife, I believe, on three different occasions where she comes to the office and is like, I need you to be with me. And he's like, uh, now is not the time. Your husband died literally two days ago. Like, I can- we cannot be seen together. Right. That would be... Then they're definitely going to book me for his murder. Uh, and there's a... He says a quote because um, somebody is like, well, you were sleeping with his wife. Why are you trying so hard to, like, avenge him? And he says, this is a good this is a good quote too. When a man's partner is killed, he's supposed to do something about it. It doesn't make any difference what you thought of him. He was your partner and you're supposed to do something about it. And it happens we're in the detective business. Well, when one of your organization gets killed, it's bad business to let the killer get away with it. Bad all around, bad for every detective everywhere. He's not wrong. Right. He's very because <laughs> if you can just Knock off a detective. Uh, look at that. Look how many detectives will be knocked off. That would explain some of the vendettas we were talking about earlier with but, Pinkertons. For sure. Uh, I've lost my spot. Let's see. Uh, and <laughs> and this and he's like, okay, so we need a Patsy, we need a Fall Guy. Mm-hmm. I vote that motherfucker. <laughs> basically pointing at Wilmer. And at first, Gutman is like, I couldn't possibly. He's like a son to me. Then eventually, in the same conversation, he's like, yeah. Well, when Spade points out to him how practical it is for Wilmer to be the guy who did it. Right. He's walking around pointing guns at everybody. He's gun happy. He's a psychopath. He really wants to kill somebody. Yeah. And probably already has, but wants to do it again. So it only makes sense that you get the guy who is not going to rat them all out, necessarily. The guy who's already a killer, who's a liability to Gutman. Yeah. Who's a very civilized person. Right. Yeah, you um, can't have this loose arrow, or lo- loose cannon. That's the word. Wow, well, not mine. It's so much harder to operate. So much loose. There's less damage. It might like might like hit the the deck and and put a ding in it or something. But yeah, loose cannon is much more to a ship. So yes, for sure. So Gutman finally is like, yeah, and he he. Wilmer gets knocked out, and right. I don't know if he's awake or passed out when Gutman is like, sorry, man, I right. really was fond of you. <laughs> Fucking deuces, though. <laughs> like, and, uh, so it's just after dawn, and he calls Effie. Now, he had sent um, O'Shaughnessy mm-hmm. home with Effie. He'd asked Effie, like, what do you think of this woman? And she's like, She's been through some shit, but she's, like, legitimately, like, at the at the right. root, a good person. And he's like, okay, cool. Would you take her to your house? Uh, and she's he's like, I know it's you and your mom. Mm-hmm. 
should be safe. It should be yeah. fine. Um, so she calls, or he calls her and says, hey, bring me the bundle. She had already known where it was. He let her know be- because he knew he could probably die. Like, really? Mm-hmm. Somebody needs to know where this thing is. Right. And he could have been shot by Wilmer at any point. Right. Maybe by Cairo, but probably not. Uh, and so she brings the bundle and it is unwrapped. It's she so has a few words for him. It's just like, you know, watch out. Yeah. And like, she even asked if she could help, which again, yeah. good man, sister. Yes, right. And so he open, tears open the bundle and he pulls out the bird, which is the first time we see it. Mm-hmm. And he starts chipping away at it and there's no there there. Right. It's just... Lead. A blackbird, yeah. yeah. And he, uh, he gets real mad. And also, at the same time, as he's getting real mad, Wilmer has come to his senses and books it, because he's not entirely stupid. And, uh, Green Street, like, Sydney Green Street, and this scene is, like, so fucking pissed. <laughs> like, he is, like, I put all this work into this, and now this right. is, it's nothing. And, uh, he calms down. He said he invites um Lori to uh Cairo to return with him to Istanbul to keep looking for this thing, and then they go to leave. Like they're gonna go off and have another adventure. I'm surprised I didn't do a road movie with the two well, of them. They did a lot of things together <laughs> after this, basically because you find out later on that Spade is arranged for the two to get picked up. Mm-hmm. So they don't have that road movie, but there's half a dozen films they do after right. as either antagonists or friends out on adventures together because... Because they're so right. diff- markedly different from one another. Are you think... You said Wilmer is coded as gay and right. Lori is coded right. as gay, right? When we first always see Lori, um, Effie, uh, he... Effie, or Spade walks in the office, he right? He smells so good. And, and Spade's like, what's that smell? And she goes... Lavender and sort of like wings a fluttery hand. Yeah. And it's like, oh, okay, I get it. Wilmer is referred to as a gunsel. That's right. And a gunsel, the editors of some of the Black Mask, I think it is, took gunsel to mean a guy with a gun, like it was Yiddish. It's actually a Yiddish term for a young homosexual man. Interesting. And so it puts the whole relationship with Gutman like, is he. Is this somebody he's with, or is that... Because there's one scene where Spade is searching through their room, and they have, like, these twin beds. And that's when he finds the... Uh, this is after he wakes up from being knocked out. Yeah. And so um, the whole idea being that this could have been Gutman's, or sort of maybe three gay characters in this Right, game. like his stable. Mm-hmm. Like his... Right. Lori is often coded as gay, so I just looked it up. He's, right. Not. No, oh god, no. <laughs> Married the, three times, two women. He was the exact opposite. As a matter of fact, for some reason, he was, uh, women really liked him. There he was, five foot four with his strange, creepy accent. And his, I bet uh, he was super nice. Apparently, in real life, he was very, very so, funny. I, I, well, there's that too. Right. But he's in so much stuff that right. you gotta think, well, he was good to work with. Although that wasn't necessarily the case during this time. I think mm-hmm. it's more true now. Right. Um, like, if you see somebody in a bunch of different types of things, it's, like, largely probably because 
they have good buzz about working with them. Yeah. Like, this is a pleasure to work with. And I bet he was the same way. But like I said, at well, this point, sometimes people were in everything, yeah. and they were well, because they were contract players. Right. Bogart uh, apparently really liked working with them, and the studio liked seeing... There's a really fun movie, The Mask of Demetrius, which is one of my... It's based on a, an Eric Ambler story. Uh-huh. With... Uh, Laurie and Sydney Greenstreet in similar parts, and it takes place in Turkey. And mm, there's okay. a there's a, a murder of a mystery. Peter Laurie's a mystery writer. He wants to. He finds out from Colonel Hockey, who's a Turkish police uh, commander. Um, so who, that's his Istanbul after all. <laughs> but uh, he goes to see a body that's been taken out in the morgue. He's like, "Do you want to see the, the actual face of a murderer?" Because very much like the third man, this is Peter Lloyd's playing a character who writes detective novels who's never actually seen a crime committed. Ah, gotcha. So he sees this guy and becomes obsessed with him and then finds out, oh, he's not dead after all, he's alive. And he's running around committing crimes and Sidney Greenstreet's been after him too. And they join forces. And they're just really funny together. They constantly, what, is this, what is this book? Uh, the Mask of Demetrius. The Mask of Demetrius. Okay. And it's based on a really fun book by Eric Ambler. Also. Okay. Anyway. Um, yes. So... After they leave, they mm-hmm. leave Spade alone, and he picks up the phone and gives them the police, uh, and then he goes and confronts O'Shaughnessy, who at this point is like, was everything between us a lie? <laughs> Don't you love me? And I'm like, first of all, this man has known you for three days, and he's almost been killed like six times. So whatever he feels about you, it's not love. Uh... And that drive, that's the thing that drives me nuts. So that we have all this off-screen interactions with them. Yeah. Indubitably, they definitely had sex. Right. And the, but the only way we as the audience know that is because she freaks out at him at the end about, why don't you love me? And I'm like, why do you love him? You've known him for she three She doesn't days. love it. She doesn't. She is, she is really a world-class manipulator. She is. That is and true. that's, you know, she, she deliberately, when, when you learn that when she first comes into the office, she's flirting with Spade, and then she starts flirting with Archer because Archer's the one who's going to be watching her. Right. And I believe that she kills That's right, that's right. Archer. And he knows that by then, so he confronts her at this point, and right. he says, I know that you've killed my partner. Right. I hope they don't hang you precious by that sweet neck. Yes, Angel, I'm going to send you over. The chances are you'll get off with life. That means if you're a good girl, you'll be out in 20 years. I'll be waiting for you. If they hang you, I'll always remember you. That's yeah. great dialogue. She confesses and begs him not to turn her over, right. and he... Doesn't he's not going to go to jail for like, her? No, no. Yeah, no, he's not going to get the death penalty. Which mm-hmm. is too. And then he gives up the statuette as uh, evidence. Mm-hmm. And when they, when the cop that has been, we've seen Tom, Tom <laughs> throughout the thing, which you can tell that they have a good working relationship right. generally. Yeah. Although he's frustrated now because he does kind of think Sam Spade killed Thursby because of Archer. Right. He tells him when he when Tom asks what is it, he says it's the stuff that dreams are made of, which is great. And that's the end of the movie. Right. It's so twisty though at the end. You got to be paying attention. Yeah, but the good thing is it's so short. Like I think I missed. It's not mm. that short. <laughs> it's like an hour and forty three minutes or something. Yeah. So it's it's um. It's it's the length of a good movie. Like I feel right. like that's a good length yeah. for a movie. It's a comfortable. As length we're about to head into Titanic with Woof. 
is a very long movie. I'm just like, uh, we need to set aside three hours <laughs> at some point. Um, yeah, so this is it thrilling? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It fully is. It's like thrilling from Go. Right. It's thrilling from uh, when the man whose name is on the window that you uh-huh. first see is killed almost immediately. Right. It's like, the fuck is happening? Uh, I do like that almost as quickly as Archer dies, Sam Spade scrapes his name off the windows and doors, and then it's just the Sam Spade detective agency instead of Spade and Archer. And I'm just like, sentimental, aren't we? I, I, I love... <laughs> and Effie also is like, not... Yeah, she's, she's fine with her. I think... Of the two, uh-huh. Archer was a gro- was a was gross. Right. Like I feel like Archer was the type of detective who'd be like, "Well, you could pay me two hundred dollars, or you could pay me one hundred dollars and have sex with me." You know what I mean? <laughs> like I feel like that was his mo, which is why I'm like not really surprised well, that Spade was sleeping was, with his wife. What was the line that he has in? Um... God, yeah, there's a line that he has in there that covers that. The um, the quotes in in IMDb are all very very good. I don't know who she's talking about, but Bridget says he has a wife and three children that's, in England. Yeah. Oh, is that no? no that was not okay. Archer, but that's a and good then Spade too. says they usually do, though not always in England. No, she was talking about Thursby at that point. Oh, yeah, and also, Mr. Archer was so alive yesterday, so solid and hearty. And Spade says, stop it. He knew what he was doing. Those are the chances we take. And Bridget says, was he married? And he says, yeah, with 10,000 insurance, no sh- no children, and a wife that didn't like him. And she's like, how could you say that? And he's like, that's really? that's the truth. Like, I'm not over-embellishing. He's not I'm not, a noble. He's that's not what it was. Uh... So and he knows about the wife, right? And he probably pays for the insurance. That's probably through the firm, right? Like I feel like if you're a detective, right, the company pays for your life there's insurance. A, there's a great, there's a lot of great touches in this film, and it doesn't surprise me that Houston was only giving something like four hundred thousand dollars to shoot this movie. So he made the most of it by being really exact with his framing and stuff. So there. are Particular shots where you get a lot of information very quickly. Yeah. It's very economical, what he was doing, in terms of storytelling. But also, the dialogue is, Mm -hmm. like, crackling. It's not expository and dry. No. But it does... But it... Like, it's character that moves the plot forward. Right, exactly. Which is hard to do, but the best. Like, that's what you want to be doing. There's a scene very... The the end of the... The close of the the first act, maybe, or depending on how you break things like this up, between Spade and Archer, right before, you know, the next next scene is Archer getting it. Yeah. uh, The camera pulls away in their office, so you see their desks next to each other. Uh And... The light is shining, I suppose, from the other, uh, from where Effie's sitting, uh-huh. through the glass door. It has Spade and Archer that's cast Just on the floor. On the floor, right. Now, that is nothing that could actually happen in real life, because it's it would be backwards. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but <laughs> it's laid out in this really stylized way that really works. Like, okay, I get it. I totally get it. All the information I need is there. But there was the same thing we said about Casablanca, when you're establishing Rick's character. Yeah. 
everything you need is in a couple of lines. It's in the way he talks to right. other people. Rather uh, and Hammett actually really... Is it Hammett or Marlowe? And the remember. way that people talk about him. Right. It's, it's both. I think Hammett said that he liked, after two tries at this, two swings at his story, that he really liked this version of it. And he mentioned, yeah, all that Bogart has to do to dominate a room is walk into it. Yeah, he does have a presence, for sure. I mean, a lot of actors do in real life. Right. Like, when you... You don't see these people typically, but when you do, mm -hmm. very often you're like, holy shit. Right. Like, even if it's not a stunningly good-looking person, it mm -hmm. is, there's something that exudes from them. And whether or not that happens before they get famous, or that, right. that, that is innate in their being, you know, from a young age, or if it grows within them as they become stars that right. become the confidence of it being yeah. the center of attention and, and yes and the fact that everywhere you go people are fawning over you mm -hmm. you're going to start believing your own hype at some point almost everyone does yeah it's not a good look but it happens um if you can stamp that down you'll still be a good person too right. but there is that magnetism every time i've been around somebody like legitimately a star mm -hmm. it was like that is like a son, like a son mm -hmm. walks into the room. Right. Um, not a child, like a male child, right. but like, like a star, like, like the, like, it's synonymous with star. Yeah. Uh, so I, then Bogart had to be like yeah. that, especially because and I don't know that height restrictions were quite as bad then as they are mm -hmm. now, but he's not a giant, he's not right. 6'3". Like, now he'd have to be 6'3 to get the parts that he gets. Yeah. Um, unless he's Tom Cruise and he's not, right? Like, mm -hmm. He's actually he like shorter than, than Bogart. Yes. Um, but he also started way younger, I think, mm -hmm. than Bogart probably did. Because I don't know if I've ever... I can recall seeing Humphrey Bogart younger than, like, 35. Well, I've seen him he... younger in films. He often played older characters as he was younger. He's like a craggy man. Right. So he, he did a lot of that, and he basically played villains a lot. I could and see that. so, as I, we mentioned when we talked about Casablanca and also about Trigger and Cher Madre, his whole career really was based on the fact that he was willing to take parts that George Raft, who was the big star at the time, kept turning down. And this is one of the parts he turned down. George Raft turned this one down, too. And so he's like, I'll do it. And then just completely makes it really memorable on his own. And to people maybe of your generation, you won't even remember George Raff, but you'll know Humphrey Bogart. And so it's kind right. of funny that, you know, somebody had their moment and just kept going. And I, I don't, maybe this is an unfair characterization, but said, I'm a big star, I don't have to take these gangster parts anymore. And then somebody else is like, no, I'll take those parts, and then he just takes them, and the amoral private detective, and and the uh, guy who's looking for gold who doesn't find it and gets killed. Yeah, all those parts wind up accumulating and making this really great filmography. I didn't realize he was one of the original Rat Pack. Really? Yeah, I didn't know that either. Uh, right now, if you're yeah. a fan of movies and things, Blank Check, although it's in their Patreon feed, is doing Ocean's Eleven. The Oceans series, in fact. They started with the original Oceans 11, which... That movie is a lot of woof. It's not a good movie. I've watched it. 
I watched parts of it. I couldn't get through it. It's very long. It's a musical. Nothing happens for 45 minutes. Mm. It's the most meh heist I've ever seen, which is a bummer because I love to watch a plan come together. And there's no plan that comes. I mean, a plan comes together, but it's boring and you don't care. Uh, but I didn't realize that he was uh, one of them because I thought he'd be too old, maybe. But maybe also all those guys were older than I think too. Uh, anything else to say about this movie? You thought it was thrilling. I think it's. Oh thrilling. yes, I do. I absolutely do, and I really. Oh, by the way, I'm George, glad I saw it. I'd never seen it before. George Clayton Johnson, uh, who wrote Logan's Run among other things, oh, wrote uh, and wrote some of the Twilight Zone episodes, some of the great ones too. Um. He wrote Ocean's Eleven as a film about a bunch, a really tough drill sergeant who gets his men together and finds a heist and takes over, takes money from a, a Vegas casino. Right, casino, yeah. Right. They're tough guys. They, they've made plans. They, you know, were at Normandy together or it, something. It never, none of the versions. The property <laughs> got bought by Frank Sinatra's people and they immediately turned it into this weird farrago where... In an it's interview, also so long. Right. In an interview, George Clayton Johnson's like, I have, I, I don't, I wanted my name taken off of it. Like, why is, why is Sammy Davis Jr. bursting into song? Like, why? It was, when what? it happened, when right. I was watching it, I was like, what's happening? Right. right why is Dean Martin tap dancing? Why is Frank Sinatra wearing an orange Angora sweater at one point? Two hours and seven minutes right. from 1960. And he's like, I saw oh. is tough movie about tough guys getting together. I want it to be like Magnificent Seven kind of thing, I guess, is what he was thinking. But here we go. And they this keep is, it as right. World War II buddies. Like, right. it is that, but it, is, it isn't, though. Right. It's like, <laughs> how did these guys get through Normandy together? How did, like, how did they get through the European theater? I, I don't see how these particular guys did that. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, it was very strange. But yeah, every time I think of but that's like the that, remake, yeah. so good, oh, yeah. so good. And it's it's, it's far too late to make them all war friends, but at the same time, no. and they're also in the the Clayton Johnson's version. They were tougher guys. They're shooting at cops. They're blowing up cars. They're doing yeah, stuff they're like not, that. No, I like what they did with the remake, where right. it was literally just no, we're criminals, right? Because you know who robs a casino? Criminals, especially now. Right. I don't. I, maybe. Mm-hmm. But the mob was running the casinos right. in 1960. I don't know that it's a good idea to steal from them. No. Now, to be mm. fair, no, oh. and, uh, Garcia, Andy, Andy Garcia, Garcia. Uh, not Anthony. So sorry, um, Andy Garcia is also not one to really be trifled with. And most rich people who own casinos, mm-hmm. and by which I mean fucking rich. Right. Uh, they have, like, a little army on the, at their disposal, oh, yeah. and they will fuck you up, too. Uh, so, it's not less dangerous now, but it feels like that danger is not as omnipresent <laughs> as it was when the mob was running the place. Uh, but, yeah, so... Uh, but I did not know he was... He was Rat Pack. I knew it was, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. and... Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra. Dean Martin Frank Sinatra, right. Uh, dudes that sing. Like, I, don't, I didn't expect... Because I don't feel like Humphrey Bogart had a good voice. No, I don't know. He, I he don't had a good, know. great speaking voice. He had a great speaking voice, but I don't... I, he seems yeah. like somebody who couldn't hold it to. No. Which is fine. Not in the he paper had bag, other not a suitcase. 
but okay, so that's the Maltese Falcon. It's uh-huh. good. If you haven't seen it, you should see and it. And we didn't spoil the shit out of it, which we definitely did. But you should see it. Still, even if you. Uh, it's so twisty. Yeah, it's so twisty. It's so twisty. Yeah, as you understood listening to us, we just didn't fully get it, but it was so enjoyable that. Like, I don't even remember the boat on fire. Like, right. that's. I, which is wild, but that's true. Because it just moved. There's a boat. There's, it's on fire. Next scene. Right. Yeah, <laughs> right. It also goes very right. much at a clip. But the. the like I said, the di- the dialogue is so so good, right. largely because it's just yoinked out of a book. That's what they should always do. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I think most um, adaptations should start that way. Now, mm-hmm. in a lot of cases, you're gonna have to take a lot of that shit out. Right. But changing the way characters speak is, to me, worse than changing the color and gender of a character. Right. Like, because now it's not the character anymore. The character lies with motivation and uh, action and mm. speech. That's what's it, That's what makes up the character on the page. So I, I can imagine them as being any kind of person, but that character remains the same. And the funny thing, Hammett wasn't... He didn't really figure himself on being a writer. He mm. wrote a great deal. And as he... He said that he got better over time. Um, but one of the things that he specialized was was in the dialogue. Because he felt that the other parts of the fiction, he was somehow deficient in, so he would just write these really crackling exchanges between people. Yeah. Um, and so... And I feel like largely it was him mm-hmm. sitting in bars and listening to people. Right. But also, again, his time as an actual detective, yeah. you know, he stood up and get said. One of the things I mentioned to you is that he was really creative with language, like his use of the word gunsel. But yeah. he does a lot of kind of really... he. There are things that he introduced into slang vernacular that didn't exist at the time that he made up. Right. And so because he just felt like it's going to date me if I wind up using terms that are current, what he wound up doing is making up his own, and then they wind up becoming things that we use. We still say dingus for stuff. Right. And it's just like one of those weird things that he, you know, uh, mm-hmm. phrases that he either created or completely popularized, uh, or either he, yeah, that created or popularized. Right. Anyhow, great film. Okie doke. So next week... Um, as we discussed, Titanic. Our heart will go on. Which is weirdly prescient in today's yes. world. Although the news cycle has already moved on. We're going to talk about it, though. Because we have to. I've seen James Cameron more this week than I did when Titanic was released. Or, uh, really? In the last couple of weeks. It's just, yeah, because he's like, well, if you're down in a real fucking submarine, right. it's not a problem. If you go down in a fucking Ricky Dick toy... This is what the fuck right. is going to happen. Is, Anyways, I mean, we're going to get into it next time. We from the bath toy from what so I ridiculous. Um, we'll talk about it. We'll mm-hmm. talk about it next time. In the meantime, yeah, and so if you haven't seen Titanic, you guys, like, legitimately, it's a good movie. Which, yeah, it is. Like, it is a, good, it is a long movie. Like, you got to settle yeah. in. Um, but it's... I've watched it, like, probably four times all the way through. Mm-hmm. And I enjoy it every time. There right. are parts where I'm like, I could do without this. It could be shorter. Hey, James Cameron, all your sh- can be shorter. Way, James Cameron, watch the Maltese Falcon and see how much you can actually do within an hour and 43 minutes. <laughs> Sorry. 
But then how long is Avatar? Making the most expensive movie ever made because when Titanic was made, it was the most expensive movie ever made, and he's just kept topping it for for bad results. Anyways, we'll maybe talk more about Cameron. We've done it before. Mm. We'll do it again. Uh, Titanic next week. In the meantime, hey, do you have anything you would like to recommend? I have an odd choice to recommend. Let's do it. And it's based on the fact that I really enjoyed the Maltese Falcon. Um, There's a film from 19... uh, Let's see. 1982. Called Hammett. And it stars uh, Frederick Horst and Marilyn Henner and Peter Boyle, Roy Kinnear, all these very kind of like 70s, early 80s actors. Elisha Cook Jr. is in it. Oh, nice. <laughs> but it's it was a film that was directed by the German director, Wim Wenders, okay. and produced by Francis Ford Coppola. And at some point, Wim Wenders and Francis Ford Coppola have all sorts of arguments about the film. One wants to go to a very realistic direction, and uh-huh. one wants to go with a sort of a, more of a homage to what Hammett started with writing the Maltese Falcon. Okay. And the creation of kind of like hard-boiled detective stories. Right. And the final movie is like a confluence of the two, or a convergence of the two, I'll say that. It's a really fun movie, if, especially if you like the Maltese Falcon, because the perp- the point of the film is very much like an 80, early 80s version of Shakespeare in Love, Interesting. Is that he winds up meeting the characters and some of them get away with it. So in the end, he writes the Maltese Falcon at the insistence of Mary Lou Henner's character, who also is a great as a, as a, a dame, right? She is perfect for that kind of that part. That seems right, yeah. Um, and she like tells him at the very end of it, why? how did this person and this person get away with what they did? And he says, well, I can keep them from getting away with it. And he winds up riding the Maltese Falcon as a result. Interesting. And it's a really fun movie. Again, it's, it's, there's points that are really realistic. You see him rolling out of bed and coughing blood up into his sink. Because, again... Tuberculosis. And then there are scenes that are really kind of stylized and fun. And, uh, and they really give a, an interesting view of... Again, San Francisco, that was actually shot, a lot of that was shot in San Francisco in buildings that were still around in 1982 from, uh, from Hammett's time. Be aware, he's just recommended a film that you have to buy on DVD or Blu-ray. Right, and I'm it's sorry for that. It's not playing but anywhere. It really but it might be on, like, um, TM, TCM right. eventually. Um, but it's a really fun movie if you get a chance to see it. And it... it captures, it's, again, very much like these are the people who wind up becoming the uh, the reason why he writes this story. Because he needed to have justice for what what didn't get... Because that, that was a Merlin Henner's other line. It's like, why isn't everything tied up neatly in the end? Because that's not how that's life not works. Life. <laughs> so it's a really good movie. And Frederick Forrest is an underused actor. He was part of a generation of actors from, like, the 70s who didn't get to break out quite the way that Jack Nicholson did. Mm, okay. So he was part of that generation. Harris Dillon was another one. There's a, you could name a bunch of actors that didn't quite get the turn that they needed, but really gave good performances or consistently really good. So right. That's what I'm recommending. Cool. Hammett. Hammett. 1981. 82. 
What do you recommend? By Vin Vendors, a filmmaker who's I don't think I've ever seen one of his films. He's <laughs> directed so eighty-three <laughs> films, and I've seen zero films, and he's still directing. Yeah. He's got one out this year. Wow! So Good for him. Yeah. Uh, what am I, what am I, what am I going to recommend? So, in high school, uh, one of my best friends, favorite, favorite movie was, was it 1984 Best Picture winner, Amadeus. And I had never seen it. Mm -hmm. And until three days ago, I had never seen it. And three days ago, because our roommate actually recorded it, I did get to see it. And that movie is bonkers and also fantastic. <laughs> uh, it is wild. So we've got F. Murray Abraham, rest in peace. Mm -hmm. He's so good. And he really, if you have seen the cartoon Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, Judge Frollo is, I'm pretty sure, just yoinked <laughs> from his <laughs> salary. Like uh, and Tom Hulse, an actor I have literally never heard of. You have. Why have I heard of him? Parenthood. I don't know who he is in that. I saw He's it. He's the guy who's a gambler who ends up getting his dad, Jason Robards, to sell his car. I literally don't know what you're talking about. Okay. I've seen Parenthood once. Right. Okay, there we go. And I remember that Steve Martin's in it, and that Keanu Reeves plays a very small part. That's what I remember about Parenthood. Uh... So strange. I watched the TV show, but right. I did not. I do not recall the movie very much. But yes, I know he was in that. I know he's been in things that I've seen, but I have zero recollection of him. He looked vaguely familiar, but we're also talking about he was pretty young mm -hmm. in this movie. The laugh, the laugh, you guys, <laughs> the laugh that he does is upsetting, and it is constant. And when he does it. You really understand what Salieri is feeling. Salieri's character, F. Murray Abraham, who is narrating the story to a priest, I believe, who has come to take his confession However, he's, he's before his death. Right. But this man doesn't believe in God, except he totally does because he hates him. Right. Can't not believe in him and also hate him. That's not how it works. Hey, atheists who hate God, I'm talking to you. But um, he is also. The one of the more ego, one of the most egocentric characters I've ever seen in a movie. Because every time something happens, it's about what it did to him, or what, like, how he was being punished. And a lot of it was that God punished him, even though he gave everything up for God, quote, 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 because he prays with things like, "Let your grace." flow through me so I may become the most famous person in the world. And it's like, that's not how that works. And then he's like mad that he gave, basically gave God his chastity. This man apparently never had relations with a woman because he gave his chastity to God, kept on giving his chastity to God after he had been forsaken or had forsaken him. And now he's mad about it. And I'm like, Hey, guess what? God didn't ask you to give him that, but, you do you, boo. Uh, it's a great performance, both young and old. Um, they do the makeup. Dick Smith does his old right. age makeup, so it's flawless, as he does. Um, and, like, it's entertaining all the way through. It's a, it's a longer movie. It's a little over two hours, I think. Um, 
But you don't feel like it. It's it goes. It just goes. Right, and it's I'm, and it's beautiful right, to look at. It's really beautiful to look at. If you're not musically inclined, you don't know his music. It's still it's, an amazing yeah. story, and it's riveting because here's a guy. I mentioned this to my friend Alan, and we talked about it when we were watching it. There's never been a film adaptation of Paradise Lost. Right, John Milton's Paradise Correct. Lost. Everyone has tried to. No one's been able to get the starting with Orson Welles. And, and they shouldn't make Bradley lost. Cooper, right? They've all been trying to make a version of this story because what's compelling is Lucifer hates God because I'm supposed to be the most important one. I'm I'm the favorite. Right. I'm the baby. And Don't have another baby because I'm the creature that has a soul. Yeah. How dare? How dare you? And so then I'm you gonna, love it. Uh uh-uh. uh. Right. Gross. No, I am going to <laughs> make sure that creature never prospers and that everything he does fails. And it's the same thing. It's like we didn't, we're not going to get a film version of that anytime soon. And but so this is people. very much that. Yeah, it's that he's like his his struggle isn't with uh, Amadeus. His struggle is with God. It's with God. How but, dare you do that to me? But he 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 brings Mozart close, uh-huh. and Mozart legitimately thinks this is the Which only is really one who's on my side. And meanwhile, he is destroying this man's life. Right. One brick at a time. Sometimes not just one brick at a time. Sometimes he knocks a whole fucking right. wall over. It's bonkers. Right. The other thing that's really interesting in 2023 is watching Hultz's performance of Mozart and you're just like that's an autistic man. Yeah. 100%. Like there's no and I don't know if he is, I, I gotta think in, in 20, er, 1983 when they're filming this movie, there isn't really There's not as much awareness, awareness as, of autism. Right. So he's just playing an eccentric genius who is a savant. Right. He is a musical savant. There's no doubt oh, about yeah. it. He's like four years old. He makes his first composition of five, yeah, I think. Five or something right. like that. And it's he can, he, he can play, he can replay music after hearing it once. Mm-hmm. Flawlessly and and do uh, variations on that piece yeah. immediately, um, and he just knows where the notes go, which yeah. means he's autistic because that's or he's divinely inspired, which I think is pretty much code for autistic. Uh, in, when we didn't know what that was, in either case, the result is the same. Yeah. And yes. Salieri's anger, the scenes, and Abraham, F. Murray Abraham really deserved this Oscar. This was He's so good. <laughs> but the scene where he is at one point trying to help Mozart write his music. Um, and he sits, he's just staring at this piece of paper, and it's like, I heard the voice of God, he's saying to the priest, you know. Yeah. It's you can just read all that. In yeah, he, he even not even hearing it, right. reading it on the page, and seeing that Mozart wrote this in ink. There's not a single change. Right. He there's nothing scratched out. It is a first draft that is perfect. Right. Um, and all he wants is to be able to write a single piece of music that's like that, and he can't because he's not. Autistic. <laughs> He's not a savant. Right. He tries very hard. He works very hard. Um, but his success comes from toil, not from talent. Right. And I don't necessarily believe in talent. I think most things can be um, 
like you can get very good at, at something without right. innate talent. But a lot of times when I say that, what I'm talking about is the doing of something rather than the creating of something. Creation, I think, might take talent. Right. Um, it's starting it's to be a whole a very interesting kind of uh, bend over the weekend where I was thinking a lot about that. What is the difference between as Salieri resigns himself to being the patron saint of mediocrity right. to um, being someone who's just inspired and yeah. whether that inspiration is divine or whether inspiration comes from some sort of reaction in the back in of the it, yeah, right. it is something other yeah. in either case. Yeah. Where Orson like uh, Amadeus is where he's coming from is a completely different place and they're going to have to toil and suffer in a completely different yeah. way that we don't understand. And, and fundamentally, too, we gotta. We, I want to let you know that he doesn't. He's not just jealous because this per, this other mm-hmm. person has this talent. He's jealous that this specific right. person has this talent because he's vulgar, he's childish, right. he's everything right. that this man detests in a person, he's a person except right. he writes the most beautiful music he, that's ever been written. There's a great line that uh, Holtz has in the film. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Holtz, which apparently is how you're supposed to Holtz? I'm so yeah. sorry. Um, I just found that I, I would have, never have guessed. <laughs> he's, he's defending the marriage of Figaro mm-hmm. as an opera. Mm-hmm. Right, because it's been banned. The play has been banned, and he's like, but wait. It's a French, that French play, it's going to have the French and their reputation in in Germany and Austria and everywhere. But they also think that the the subject matter is not appropriate for the people. And he explains very passionately, Amadeus says, I'm a vulgar man, but my music is not. Right. You've all heard it. Right, he understands his, like, I understand what I am, and if I could... I, I can't do anything about that. That's just what I am. Yeah. I understand also that what I can make is beautiful. Yeah, and that's the, that's another thing that uh-huh. that autism thing that comes through is um, it's not necessarily that autistic people don't understand social norms. Mm-hmm. They see you performing these pleasantries and niceties and stuff, and they're like, "Why? Right. Just be." straightforward with people. Like, why are you putting on this facade? And they just choose not to put on the facade. Right. Uh, unless they're masking, in which case they're literally putting on the facade. Um, and that's what he's doing here. Like, he understands the, with the vulgar comment. He's mm-hmm. like, yeah, I get it. I don't do, I don't bow, I don't do the things mm-hmm. that I'm supposed to do to in front of this king or this bishop or mm-hmm. whoever it is. Right. Take me on what I make. There's a lot of um, (laughs) separating the artist from the art in this movie. Which we'll be doing soon when we watch Rosemary's Baby. Uh, (laughs) Ah, yes. (laughs) the artist from the art. So, Amadeus is real good. If you haven't seen it, watch it. I wish I had watched it sooner. It was cool to be able to watch it for the first time. Yeah. Uh, If you haven't watched it, watch it for the first time and have that experience. It's, It's real good. So that's it. Amadeus and Hammond. Those are our recommendations. And next week, Titanic, y'all. It's our heart be will go Titanic. on. Our heart will go on and on. And on. And on. Um, for three hours. <laughs> In the meantime, if you have questions, concerns, you can email us at latecomerspod at gmail.com. You can find us still on Twitter 
and Facebook, searching face, searching the latecomers in the search bar. Uh, and that will do it for this week. I want to remind you to please, please take your medicines. And we'd like to remind you, better late than never. never.